This evening's talk is rooted in the third domain or the third foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. With uh, the orientation of the talk uh, regarding the transformation and the relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And beginning with some words uh, from Nisargadatta Maharaj. By knowing your mind, you may avoid your mind disabling you. You have to be alert, or else your mind will play false with you. It's like watching a thief. Not that you expect anything from a thief, but you do not want to be robbed. In the same way, you give a lot of attention to the mind without expecting anything from it. Some years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included uh, teachers from many or most all of the uh, various Buddhist lineages. And one of the discussions, in one of our discussions, the question of what is Buddhism came up. And the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, was one of the guests of honor at this meeting. And he said that his response to this question is often this. Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative and afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization or liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization or nibbana being the complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an arahant. And in hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a a very uh, deep place of confidence in really, truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I have practiced with the very venerable Saida Upandita and with uh, Pawak Saida, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha also often, very often, speaks of this aspect of liberation this aspect of freedom in a very similar way. As our confidence grows and as it deepens, we too begin to at least get some sense that this really is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, 
here we all are making physical and mental effort in the service of the purification of the mind purification of the heart here in retreat and in our life outside of the retreat we come to know we come to really directly experience that through our practice through our physical and mental efforts certain states of mind increase others decrease and we begin to find that at least to some degree we've let go of what is unwholesome we've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering what's harmful to ourselves and what's harmful to others and we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind the wholesome states of heart are more and more our experience more readily available in our life and so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper and deeper root confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals our deepest aspirations in some words from the buddha from the anguttara nikaya abandon what is unwholesome o bhikkhus one can abandon the unwholesome if it were not possible i would not ask you to do it if this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering i would not ask you to abandon it but as abandoning the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness therefore i say abandon what is unwholesome cultivate what is wholesome o bhikkhus one can cultivate the wholesome if it were not feasible i would not ask you to do it if this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering i would not ask you to cultivate it but as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness therefore i say cultivate what is wholesome the extraordinary wisdom metta and compassion of the buddha the heart mind of a buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages exhorts those heading toward suffering to take care to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them rather than condemning them and the heart mind of a buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them this uh, approach to life this way of seeing can really be a great inspiration and inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us it can be done i can do it over the years of my practice there certainly uh, have been times when i've experienced uh, various uh, difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and the practices 
And when I've been able to be really honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pahaksayadao says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice meeting with him, I went in and I said, Saidao, this is just too hard. And Pawak Saido looked at me with this great kindness in his eyes and a light laughter. And he simply said, no it isn't. <laughs> well, it's true. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's not so easy, but it's not too hard. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha has encouraged us to work with them in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these so-called skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, etc., from our present life's experience and carried on for many, many lifetimes' experiences. And some of these we may certainly have mindfully met and seen with an open mind and open heart. Some of them we've ignored or maybe hidden away. Our practice is to open to whatever arises including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet. But a very important point here is our practice is not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Very important to remember that.
they will come up on their own. And most all of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Otherwise, we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes to uncover what maybe has been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or maybe judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've maybe been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly for a long time. The poet and translator Stephen Mitchell uh, in his version of the myth of Sisyphus says this We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools the tools of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation, and metta, and compassion, and equanimity, each of which helps us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, shame, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, it's, it's a very long list, <laughs> really have no more control over us. And we begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to maybe analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or trying to fix it, or maybe trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude, we begin to realize that actually none of these habitual reactive patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, 
It's then that the door to clear seeing, or what I like to call seeing through, is opened. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the, the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit uh, of giving the past maybe five years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, maybe without giving that, giving that past habit uh, much attention at all or, or relating to it that way. And then it doesn't, for at least a few moments, it doesn't have any power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. The Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana said this in his book Mindfulness in Plain English. View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And I add, within the heart of kindness. And so we we sit quietly and watch ourselves. Watch the mind and the body. And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned, habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And to change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. It's We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is rooted in fear. And it can be a vicious circle. 
And so we practice with great gentleness and kindness and a deep patience for and with ourself in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. And some, uh, a few words from Nisargadatta Maharaj regarding this. Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a a bit of a look uh, now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. And this is the suffering that is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world Everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and consequently it's conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet, quite often, we believe that the opposite of this truth to be the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place. And often we think maybe here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the imaginary future and solidify both in our mind. And yet life just keeps rolling along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. And so from this perspective we can say that suffering is optional. Up here in the Taos Ski Valley and down the road about 8 miles or 10 miles in Taos itself and in this general area of northern New Mexico, during the summer and early fall we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the 
big open sky that we have all around us up here and down in town and in this northern New Mexico area. We often have huge arches of rainbows appearing. Often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light just being perfect, just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in this life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of of changing sets of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and most readily get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent and unchanging and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant, physical or mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment. Just as it is right now, and right now, and right now. And it's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation of the heart and mind isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. And we have this saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. And with ignorance, in fact, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. 
delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or true understanding that's experienced as what's called the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion, which is caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. They're just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So now I'd like to go on with exploring a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states, particularly afflictive emotional states, and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, maybe feelings like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to. Or maybe, I can't, I can't be, be, or I'm not sure I want to be with this particular experience, this unfamiliar new experience, or maybe this old familiar experience. I can't be with this moment of life. Or I can't be with this pain in the body. I can't be with this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe feeling like one's frozen or caught or just simply unable to open to and to receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we really believe it, it's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, it's because this place, it's because of the weather, and etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticisms, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or just not being enough, maybe not doing it right, not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever perfect might mean to each of us. And really, all of this is rooted in fear. So I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, which is probably different from how uh, most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this comes from 
the Taoist master Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect person can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, and doubt, or blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourselves, or outwardly in relationship to others, which is often a way of uh, distracting ourselves from the fear that's kind of lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear. We're afraid of looking directly at the fear, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found it that it's been really not quite not so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice meeting and fearfully reported the experience of fear to him, and he responded by saying, "Fear is just fear." <laughs> well, when I first heard this, my inward response, I did not say this out loud to him, <laughs> was, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. So obviously there was some degree, a fair degree, as I remember, of resistance and uh, quite a bit of irritation in this thought that did not get expressed outwardly. But eventually I did begin to see that, yes, fear is just fear. And as we gently, open-heartedly persevere in our practice, rooted in mindfulness and kindness in relationship to ourselves, we begin to be able to meet and to receive fear, to come really close to it, to look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear, to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century uh, Persian poet Hafiz said this, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind and our heart get stronger and our concentration, mindfulness, and investigation and meta-muscles develop. We can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, it's not me, it's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens, yes. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid, static something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It certainly may be a moment of very intense experience 
But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent. And it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. It will. We learn to be steadfast. We learn to be steadfast to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself, and to begin to be able to see it clearly. We begin to be able to see through it and know its nature, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A few years ago, I read an article in National Geographic magazine. And it was a story uh, about a a woman, a 40-year-old woman named Gerald. And she was a mountain climber. She still is, probably. Um, She was the very first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. And she was... This was a story about her, her life, and this climbing that she did. It was with a climbing group. Uh, It was her husband, Ralph, and uh, a few other people. And in the article, uh, the National Geographic article, there was some writing about uh, Ralph, her husband, and her relationship to fear. And I'd like to uh, read read what it was said uh, about first Ralph. He, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And from Gerland, regarding fear. Gerland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do when she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. Gerland was, a, was is a practicing Buddhist. Buddha, Buddhist. <laughs> oh, she's not a Buddha. Well, maybe she is, but I don't know that. Uh, she's a practicing Buddhist. And um, when she reached the top of K2, and she and only one other person reached the top, her husband turned back and one person died, in that climb, and one other person besides her reached the top of K2. She took a small uh, Buddha Rupa out of her pack and placed it on the top of K2. The Buddha's teaching offers us the possibility of a, a different perspective, a dis- different relationship to things than most, uh, how most all of us have been conditioned or patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or suppress difficult emotional energies because what happens? They reappear. And putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's certainly not about blindly acting out and blindly believing afflictive emotions. 
This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And again, something important to remember is that our practice isn't about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. These strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection rooted in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With our mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. So now I'd like to take a, a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling hot spring. When we're angry, we, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, powerful energy. And from this perspective, it can be quite seductive, actually. Quite some time ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger. And in in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. What do I mean by that? People would begin to get close to her and they would feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger. And they would move away. Consequently, she was a very lonely person. And yet she was so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose what she felt was the fuel of her life if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to open to and be with and to really clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger and fear and jealousy and irritation. Our practice changes our mind. And it's about making the choice to transform our heart, transform our mind. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away to not distract ourselves, and to not pretend anything, 
but to stay still, to be here, to be present in relationship to what is. With our practice, we've chosen to see and experience things just as they are, with the very, with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. And the first year was for two months, and then when I went there the second year, it was for one month. And one student who stayed for the whole two months of practice the first year was a man in his early 40s. And he was a very successful uh, big city businessman from Warsaw. And he had diligently practiced um, Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years uh, prior to coming to the two-month Metta Vipassana retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, and living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear through much of the time during his childhood. With this fear actually still present, at least to some degree, in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he learned and taken on the habits and the thoughts and the words and the actions of that same ill temper of his father and his uncle. And he described himself to me as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable. Uh, for him as his Buddhist practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practice and through his interest and practice in Buddhism and meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Przeka, Poland that I had taught, this man diligently and mindfully practiced metta. That's all he did with only one phrase. And this is the phrase that he used. It's not a traditional phrase, but it's one that I teach and it suited him. May I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. And he did that practice for a whole year. As the year progressed, he recognized his habituated ill temper beginning to arise. He noticed it sooner and sooner in its process. Consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often and sooner and sooner. And the following year when he returned to Pajeka for the one-month retreat, he was a much changed and much happier man. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. 
the quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels quite restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body is quite tense, quite often. And with anger, the sense of self looms quite large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates quite a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line has been drawn that isn't to be passed. And with each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and, and at the same time difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed, that went that was not met with mindful attention. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to our experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends upon the quality and the focused strength and depth of our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state, anger is not solid. It's, not, it's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out. A specific mood in the mind, an emotional tone, we could say. And various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment, it's very helpful to just try to let them go. Let them drop away. The fact is that thoughts drop away very quickly. They kind of move at the speed of light. They might come right back again if you're involved, but they don't stick around very long, as I'm sure you've all noticed at times. So when you notice the stories, the thoughts of all these afflictive emotions, let them go. Helpful to try to let them go. Let them just drop away. Give them what I like to call no mind. These thoughts... They aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go. And bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body. Feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. 
So what might you be feeling? Maybe heat or tightness or pressure or heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? How is it changing? And notice the mind. Meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? Which would be more contraction. Really give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance and kindness and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. You could do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and into the breath with the walking. Or you might open up outside to the natural world, the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky, the smells, the warmth of the sun, the coolness of the air touching the skin, sounds. Take an interest. Notice the birds, maybe chipmunks, rabbits, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the rising and falling movement of the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It just isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Beyond compare, in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remember the mountain climber Gerland's relationship to fear. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, and there's often a lot of energy present in strong emotional states, the energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and uh, wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy in clear seeing that's free 
uh, of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as maybe power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition with a clear, non-self-absorbed concentration and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, doubt, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, attachment, clinging. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment, tanha in Pali. The mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind, is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis, People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented in our life, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't, that, in reality, it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. So, for instance, it's in part what got you here on retreat. So, in light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to uh, share a a prayer, uh, a personal practice, I was told, was uh, a, a personal practice of Mother Teresa's. Someone sent this to me in the mail. And I'm only going to change one word. Her prayer was, Deliver me, O Jesus. I'm saying, Deliver me, O Dhamma. (laughs) Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular 
from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I don't think she left anything out. Right after I received this in the mail and I read it, a friend called me on the phone. And I said, oh, I have to read this to you. I just got this in the mail, and it's amazing. And I told him what it was, and then I read it, and his response was, oh, my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) True, we have a lot to do, you know. But every time I read this, I feel inspired. I feel motivated and inspired. Many of us can become uh, quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire. And also we can expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or keep someone from changing. Maybe even here in retreat in relationship especially to maybe getting something back. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day. Or maybe uh, a particularly wonderful sitting that you had in your last retreat or five years ago. I want it back. It's the contraction, it's the clinging, it's the attachment and the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while. How driven am I by my desire? So, a simple, quite mundane, personal example. Some years ago, I was teaching uh, at a retreat center here in New Mexico that uh, has some of the most uh, beautiful, wonderful flower gardens that I had ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens, and I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose uh, to see where the smell was coming from. And it led me to a particular flower. So I got down on the ground close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. Then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But all I really wanted to do was just stay there and continue experiencing that lovely sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being very willing to let go and just simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. I was experiencing a tightness in the body and a kind of degree of burning irritation in the heart and the mind. Well, I did get up and I walked away to do what needed to be done next. But there was still some degree of clinging to the sweet smell, even though 
it was totally gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could get back to that garden and imagining, oh, how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens so quickly. The Dalai Lama tells a story about himself uh, that at one point he'd been uh, taken window shopping um, in some big city to a particular area of the city where there were lots of small shops that sold all kinds of um, small mechanical parts and mechanical systems. And his friend took him there because he knew that the Dalai Lama was particularly interested in in and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama said that as he looked into the shop windows, at first it was with a very open curiosity and interest. And then he said all of a sudden he realized that he wanted everything. He said, I wanted all of it even though I didn't know what any of it was for. I just wanted it all. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear sensing, seeing, and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And I think for many people there's often some confusion, delusion actually, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to really see it and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. 
The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on through each of the six sense doors the same way. And then he goes on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe uh, in a, uh, an old uh, journal called Inquiring Mind. It's not published anymore. Um, and at risk of giving you uh, a recipe that maybe you already uh, have and maybe cook up occasionally, I'd like to uh, share this one with you. So it's called Recipe for Unhappiness. The ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. (laughs) A quarter a pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. (laughs) One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized world view. Two teaspoons of perfection and four sprigs of envy minced for garnish. And here's what you do with this ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. (laughs) Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in a food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to it what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. (laughs) Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. And a very similar teaching, but uh, very offered in a very different way, from a Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. 
It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature. Just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Mahayana Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, and the white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow up in those living, show up, grow up, excuse me, grow up in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. When I first read this teaching, it was really important for me because it really acknowledged that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult energies, all of us, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish, and the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states can be digested into wisdom. So for just a moment now, looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, the possibility of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear 
without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of, we learn to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. About 20 years ago, I took my mother in to live with me here at my home in uh, in Taos, New Mexico, which turned out to be the last uh, 16 months of her life. And one early morning at the age of uh, 92, she died in her bed. And within a short time after her death, as I was sitting very closely and attentively with, with her body in her bedroom, I very clearly saw all of the tension, the accumulated tightness of anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging. I just saw all of this. It just dissolved from her face with a transformation in my mother's face into an exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was a very powerful, a very powerful teaching for me and an inspiration towards deepening my practice in the here and now with a very strong sense of why wait until death for this peace? Why wait until death for this ease? Our continuing diligent practice right here in retreat and in our daily lives is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, inclusive, with humor and goodwill, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. And offering us more time and more energy to live to our heart's content. Closing the talk uh, with a poem by a man named Roger Keyes, and the poem's called Hokusai Says. As some of you know, I'm sure, and some may not know, Hokusai is a very famous Japanese painter. And his most famous painting is a huge wave lapping over. And the lapping over of the wave looks like fingers, kind of like that, reaching down. And down underneath that lapping wave is a little boat with a lot of people in it. And this is the poem. Hokusai says, look carefully. 
He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.